This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of Scholarly, brought to you by the journal ATS Scholar and the American Thoracic Society's section of medical education. My name is Avi Cooper, and I'm the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Assistant Program Director at The Ohio State University and a member of the podcasting team here at Scholarly. I'm joined today by Dr. Christopher Carroll, lead author on the article titled Comparing the Digital Footprint of Pulmonary and Critical Care Conferences on Twitter, published in ATS Scholar in July 2021. Dr. Carroll's co-authors included Drs. Viren Call, Nihad Dangayach, Thomas Sakmani, Gretchen Winter, Dina Khatib, Graham Carlos, and Sapna Kuchadkar. Chris, it is so good to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Avi. It's a pleasure to be here. And I was saying at the outset that uh, you've been someone that I've wanted to, to meet and, and talk to and learn from kind of, you know, quote unquote, in person for a while now, since we had connected on Twitter and social media uh, before this. And so this podcast was a great excuse to get to talk to you. <laughs> well, I'm glad I could help with that. It's a pleasure to talk to you as well. Do you mind introducing yourself and what you do? Sure. And I feel like I've met you before already because of the interactions on Twitter. Twitter's a very funny place like that. Um, so I'm a pediatric ICU doctor at Connecticut Children's. I've been active on social media for a while. Um, I chaired SCCM social media committee and chest social media work group in the past. I uh, currently serve as a deputy editor for web and multimedia for the journal Chest, And I recently co-chaired the Chest conference, which just was in this past October. Right. Just wrapped up. That's great. And do you mind sharing something about yourself that maybe people might not know? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a hard question for me because I pretty much share everything on Twitter. So if you read my Twitter feed, you're going to know everything about me. But something you might not realize is I really don't like uh, serious media. I, uh, I see too much serious at work. So in my downtime, I'd rather read sci-fi or fantasy fiction, watch the latest Marvel movie or the latest Korean horror movie on Netflix. Nice. All right, well, let's dive right in. So, you know, our topic today obviously is going to be about social media and how um, specifically, I think, in the context at, at academic conferences within our specialty. Um, and, you know, social media, Twitter especially, and I, I think Instagram as well, they've really become centerpieces for engagement at international conferences. And these platforms offer opportunities for connectivity, networking, community building, sharing of educational resources, building the brand of the sponsoring organization, sparking excitement among participants. I mean, a lot of benefits. And you know, you just wrapped up co-directing the Chest Annual Conference, as you said, and congratulations, by the way. Thank and, you. And that, you know, that occurred virtually due to the pandemic, but it had a really robust social media presence, um, perhaps more than I, I think re recall at other conferences that I've been a part of. And um, so how do you view social media's role in the running of a conference from an organizer's perspective, but also from the perspective of a participant who's consuming and experiencing the conference? That's a great question. And thank you for mentioning other social media platforms other than Twitter. Too often these conversations tend to focus primarily on Twitter because Twitter is the easiest social media platform to analyze and to get data from. Uh, Facebook, it's harder to get data from. Instagram, it's even harder to get data from. So we tend to talk about Twitter a lot Twitter is uh, where most, I would say most organizations are focusing their attention. It's also really easy to link to articles and to post images on Twitter. So it's a really important academic space for uh, medicine, but there are other ones out there as well. So you know, as to 
social media's role in the running of a conference at at least for the chess conference we tried to get social media involved very early in the planning we involved the social media work group and the chairs of that group in some of our earliest planning about how to market and disseminate the information about this conference we also started to create modifiable templates that people could use during the conference to promote things as well as spread knowledge and that really went in some interesting and unexpected ways. For example, one of my co-authors, Varin Call, during the conference, he, instead of making a thread on, the, uh, on what the speaker was saying, he made a graphic about what the speaker was saying. And that was really interesting. He did on the fly. He took the key points from what the authors were saying about the, excuse me, not the speakers were saying about their topic. And he created a really, some really nice looking graphics on the fly. And I'd never seen anyone do that before. It was a, it was a really interesting innovation that, that he came up with. Yeah. And it, it sounds like you kind of baked in social media. And this is maybe why I felt like it was maybe the mo one of the more robust social media experiences that I'd had at a conference was you started it from the planning stage and kind of baked it into the DNA of the conference, it sounds like. Yeah, we did. I mean, the other, the other society conferences that we're going to talk about in this paper, the, um, the ATS uh, conference, SECM conference, they, they also have very robust social media presences and very active social media um, committees. But for CHEST this year, we really tried to let the volunteer members have as much free reign as we could give them. Um, you know, organizations uh, like to have a certain amount of control over their brand and their, their product. And we really, we really tried to push that as much as we could by letting members create great graphics that, that CHEST had designed, but then were modifiable um, for what they, you know, what they could put on them. And I think, I think it went some, went some interesting ways. That's great. And do you mind taking us through what your research question was for the for the paper? Sure. So you already mentioned my co-authors, Sapna Kuchadkar, Niha Dengayic, Tomas Akmani, Varin Call, Gretchen Winter, Dina Khatib, and Graham Carlos. Um, a lot of us have been on this space for a while, and we've seen it grow and evolve over the last decade. And several of us have watched it and have been interested in describing how medicine and particular medical societies are using social media in order to develop evidence-based practices um, for knowledge dissemination and education. That was really our mission. How can we develop best practices for other organizations? How can we improve how we're disseminating content to our members? You know, previously we'd looked at uh, social media innovations by different pulmonary and critical care societies, the digital footprints of these societies and diseases and the role of social media in the pandemic. And in this paper, we sought to determine the influence of in-person attendance on the tweeting behavior and to characterize a group of high frequency tweeters who tweeted at more than one of these conferences and to determine the effect of these group of individuals on the overall digital footprint. Previously, we'd gotten some feedback that perhaps some of the growth that we have seen in social media was due to a small cohort of people. So we wanted to look at this cohort and see if that was true, how much of the growth was due to these small groups of people who were just tweeting more and more, and how much of it was due to a more of an organic grassroots effort. And how did you structure your study? So, you know, there were two parts. First, we examined the overall presence of the conferences on Twitter um, by tracking the tweets and the most active participants 
of the 2017 to 2019 annual conferences of American Thoracic Society, CHEST, and Society of Critical Care Medicine. And then we drilled down on these high-frequency users. We define these users as people who tweeted more than 100 times at the annual conference. So that's a lot. And when we examine the overall presence, we found that there was growth, and this is not surprising. We've described that before. Other people have described that before. Um, we found that there were similar characteristics of the, the people tweeting and, um, and, and the tweet characteristics, how many were retweets, how many were original um, tweets. Clinicians made up the largest group of participants. There was between 44 and 60% in our study, and most of these clinicians were physicians. And at all the conferences, we found the amount of original content created was less than the retweets, sometimes significantly less. Um, for one conference, uh, there was only 28% original content, um, while as uh, another conference, half of the content was original content. So there is a small group of these prolific participants who was responsible for a large share of the original content and was generating it, and many other people were retweeting it. For all of the conferences, more than half the participants for each conference, for each society, tweeted only once. So the median number of tweets by a user at all these conferences was one. The, the, um, the more than half only tweeted once. And only about 5 to 8% of the participants tweeted more than 10 times. So we drilled down on the people who tweeted more than 100 times, and we found there were 83 of them. And this cohort was responsible for a sizable percentage of the total conference tweets. Sometimes up to 59% of the conference tweets were generated by these people. And there was significant overlap in that group. 32 of these individuals tweeted more than 100 times at two or more conferences, and two people tweeted more than 100 times at seven of the nine conferences. I should say that I was one who tweeted more than 100 times at six of the nine. I was going to um, say, you're probably- Yeah, I was up there. What are the odds you're not in one of those Yeah, places? Yeah, it was pretty high. So, you know, I think, you know, to go back to people who say that, is it just these people who are generating the content? It is true that these people generate most of the content, but- and the percentage of people who tweet, say, 10 times is relatively small and doesn't change very much. The overall number of those people who tweet more than 10 times has been going up, has been going up and up and up and up and up. So there are more people who are getting engaged. It's not just those high-frequency tweeters that are responsible for the bulk of these tweets. There are also a large number of people who tweet less than 100 times, and that number keeps going up. And it's interesting too, because, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, you're dropping um, pebbles in a pond, right? And then there's, there's this, you know, this ripple effect outward. And I imagine there's people that are interacting with some of like, say, a, um, a graphic that, that Viren Call produces, say, at, at ATS or something that, or, or a chest. And then that gets seen by people who couldn't make it to that, to the conference or, you know, or, or didn't attend that session. They've now benefited from that from, from, from his work and his dissemination. Right. Um, and yeah. So, and, and, you know, one thing that I, I noticed when you were, um, when you guys reported your results, so that you use this, this tool called the simpler analytic tool. Oh yeah. Um, can you explain what that is? Cause I imagine others that are interested in asking similar types of research questions would really want to know more about how you kind of glean this really rich and granular uh, data set about social media activity. Sure. So Simpler, is a, it's a great tool. It is um, an online tool that it helps you examine social media. I've gotten funding to pay for this. It is, it is a paid 
it is a paid tool. I got a grant from um, a social media seed grant from the um, InChip Yukon Center for Mobile Health and Social Media to look at this. It's incredibly robust, but it does take some effort to convert to a academic tool. It's primarily designed for marketing. So in marketing, you don't really need to prove, you don't need p-values in marketing. You don't really need to prove that something has grown from this to this. You just need to be able to show a trend. If it looks good, um, you know that's, that's good enough. So it does take some effort to build up an academic framework um, and it takes some playing around with it to do that. But the team at Simpler is incredibly helpful and incredibly knowledgeable. And you know, if I had a question, I would call them up or actually usually just message them through the, through the website and they would message me back and help me and try to, to help me out with my process. Um, so it's, it's a great tool. Uh, I wish I still had access to it, but my funding ran out. Um, but it is a, it's a fantastic tool that helped us look at a lot of digital footprints and I think answer a lot of questions about social media. And, you know, I think as we kind of think about um, kind of putting this back in the, the minds of a conference organizer, you know, I think that your, your results potentially have implications for people organizing future conferences, whether they're in-person hybrid or, or purely virtual, who want to you know, use social media to engage with their attendees. Um, what do you think the implications might be? Well, there are not a lot of people who are doing social media in academic social media and in, uh, who, who are generating this content. So I think if, if I were an organization, I would be looking to, to empower these group of very active, engaged social media experts and find out how I can empower them to tweet for my organization or to develop new digital tools for my organization or to, you know, you to, to adopt other social media platforms for my organization. Because, you know, one thing we learned from this is that there's a very small group of these people, you know, and the pe- all of the authors on our on this study, for example, were all members of all three societies. So, you know, we may tweet primarily for one for one versus the other, um, but you know, there is a large overlap uh, between the people who are doing this, and you know, p- different people serve in different roles. I I served I I currently serve at Chess, but I was chair of SCCM Social Media Committee. Um, you know eight, nine years ago. And I was active at ATS as well in their social media group. So there, there's a lot of, of overlap in this community. And I think that if, as a society, you need a medical society you need to engage this population. The organizations are already doing this through their, their different social media committees. SECM has a, has a very active social media committee. Um, Chess has a very large uh, social media committee. ATS has social media experts in the different assemblies and um, interest groups um, that are very active as well. You know, I think ATS does a great job with the multiple accounts it has. It really empowers people to, to try to take charge of their social media presence for the organization. You know, I mentioned before, there's a natural tension here. Organizations are very protective of their brands and can have issues with volunteers acting on behalf of an organization. But I think in the last probably five years, that question has been sort of put aside because really an organization is just a collection of volunteers. So who better to trust? And there's been evidence that people aren't misusing the responsibility. I mean, for goodness sakes, these people are literally holding patients' lives in their hands. You can trust them with a Twitter account. Yeah, I really love that message, Chris, you know, in terms of the, um, the democratization, I think, and the, just the kind of acknowledgement of 
you know, lifting everybody up and, and acknowledging everyone's roles to, to contribute to these organizations, including on social media. I think that's great. And I think, you know, the reality too is like in your study showed the vast majority of people engaging, even though most of the, 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 um, the tweets and the output are coming, original content are coming from a very small group of, of maybe we'll use the word influencers, um, uh, you know, at these, uh, dare I say. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm sure they would hate that. At these conferences. Um, but, you know, but people who are very active, but the vast majority of people engaging at these conferences on, on social media are, are not those people, right? Right. Um, you know, there's data from other, from other areas that, you know, most people will, will just lurk on social media and will just follow along, but not necessarily participate. So just because you only tweet with the hashtag 10 times does not necessarily mean you weren't actively following that every day. So, but do you think you have to be on social media to get the quote unquote full experience of a 2021 conference? I, I, I think, I think you're absolutely hundred percent right that you do need to be on social media to get the full conference experience. There's just so much there. There's so much complimentary content, the insights, the education, it significantly improves your conference experience. People are doing things like creating graphics or Twitter threads or tutorials um, or other innovative things that aren't you just don't get anywhere else. And, you know, eventually they'll turn up on Instagram. I have, I have had uh, people who are not on social media, except for Instagram, um, show me Twitter threads that I, you know, that, that I was involved in or that have come from chest or a graph that, that, that I helped make. So, oh, did you see this? It was really great. It's like, oh yeah, I made that uh, a couple months ago. It was on Twitter then. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, if you're not on these social media platforms, you are missing out to some degree. And you know, as, as we think about how to, you know, best engage uh, conference attendees, I imagine that um, the different milieu in which a conference takes place, meaning is it virtual, is it hybrid, is it in person, will change the way that these interactions happen, and you know, the place that it holds for conference attendees. So like, how do you, you know, you've been involved in the running of conferences that have all three of these flavors. Right. <laughs> and what were those different experiences like running it, at least from the social media standpoint? So, um, you know, anyone who's tweeted a lot at a conference will tell you it's just exhausting to tweet at a conference, you know, trying to live tweet someone's talk can be exhausting because sometimes they are well organized and well laid out, but sometimes, but frequently they are not. And you are trying to to develop a narrative in your head from their talk um, that uh, that best conveys what they said. Uh, so live tweeting can be very challenging. That wasn't really your question, but <laughs> it was something I wanted I to say. I think it's a fair statement. But is, it is. You know, I, I, uh, I went to Georgetown. I was a theology major and I did go to a few silent retreats and I frequently will joke that I need to go to a silent retreat after after one of the, these, uh, these conferences because I just need some time to unplug for a while. I never actually do it. I'm back on Twitter the next day, but I'm going to make a prediction. I don't think there will ever be another in-person conference again, excuse me, solely in-person conference again. There will never be another solely in-person conference again. They will all be hybrid or virtual. There will always be some sort of hybrid component where you can watch a at least a channel or two of a live stream from that conference. Um, they may not be broadcasting all the sessions live. They may be broadcasting, you know, one or two sessions at a time live, and the rest will be taped and will be available for people later. But, you know, there will, I don't think ever be a conference that it does not have some hybrid component again. I think people expect it. They expect to be able to have a home experience 
from their conference for their conference. I think it it helps improve diversity of speakers, diversity of attendees. You know, I uh, my children are old now, but I remember a time when they were very young, and it was very challenging to go to medical conferences when they were when they were little. A lot of parents have, I'm sure, same feelings. They don't want to leave. They they want to go to the conference. They want to learn, but they don't want to to leave or they can't leave. So I think there'll always be a hybrid component. Um, I also think there will be some conferences that stay per, um, purely virtual, especially uh, some smaller conferences might stay just purely virtual. You can get good experience from a virtual conference um, that is entirely virtual, but I, I think conferences will either be hybrid or or um, completely virtual. You know, and, and I guess, you know, my... My sense was from, you know, having been at in-person conferences, I, I sometimes found that the social media was a way, way almost of memory making, right? Um, you know, yeah. and, and community right, building, right. you know, and people are together and it's like we were here and I just, with virtual, I didn't feel that the same, mm. that, that, that social media had that same role of community building in the same, I think content um, sharing was happening. And I don't know if you had, did, did you have any? Yeah, I get that. I get that. that yeah, I get that because I certainly remember sitting in conferences and, you know, sitting at a big plenary session and trying to figure out where other people were sitting based on their camera angles of their, of the, the <laughs> pictures their they were taking. <laughs> yeah. Of the pictures they were taking yeah. saying, Oh, you know, Ken Tegmeyer's here. I'm going to go find him or, you know, somebody is here. Let me go, let me go see them and talk to them. And sometimes you would sit next to them when you were tweeting, um, which is always fun too. I, I think you're right that there is, um, there is a certain amount of memory making involved in that. I think, you know, there was, when I live tweet something, I always have the intention that I'm going to go back and use that for note taking. I don't know that I ever actually do um, look at those again, but they do help me remember things. I think um, they help me remember more about the talk um, that a person was giving. But yeah, there's a real community that's built um, on social media that people who aren't on social media at these conferences don't get. Yeah, and one thing that I noticed at Chest 2021, you know, which was virtual, was that my activity within the conference was sort of um, tracked, and I was getting like little, I was getting points for like the more that I did. Yeah, <laughs> engagement wise, like it would go up, I would get a score, and I could see there was a leaderboard, and it was yeah, that was, was great. Like, it was like sort of motivating. Um, yeah, and, it was great. <laughs> and so I guess you know, is that is that something that you, do you think that like social media that the conferences should be doing things like that on a regular basis for social media engagement? I think that I think that we should always focus on making learning as fun as possible. And uh, I think that we are naturally competitive. When we were designing that game, that gamification process, I was asked by the staff, well, do we need to give any prizes for these things? And my response was, yeah, well, I guess we can, but you just really need points. You just need points. People will compete. And it was... Um, it was fun. It was fun to compete and see who was getting more points for just being there. I think that, um, you know, we're, you know, clinicians, uh, mostly physicians. We, uh, we, at least on social media and we, we like to compete with each other. We're competitive people and in a fun way. I mean, who really cares if you have more points than the, the other person, but it's just a fun way to, fun way to, to enjoy the conference, a different way to enjoy the conference. Well, definitely worked for me. So, <laughs> and you know, Chris, um, as we kind of get to the end of the podcast here, what is the what does the future do you think look like for national medical organizations and social media, and you know, like, and, and maybe focusing specifically on on these international conferences? What is, what do you think's coming down the road? 
I, I think there's two trends. I think the first trend is that organizations have realized that free open access education is an important part of their portfolio, that they need to provide it as a service to their members and as a service to the community. This was particularly true during COVID, where you know the amount of misinformation out there was significant in organizations spurred by their members and their paid professional staff said, we need to counter this. There are a lot of people who are being pressed into service who may not be critical care physicians or critical care nurses. We need to provide education to help them as a public health, as, as a public health tool. This is, this is part of our mission. And I think that that's something that's not going to go away. I think that members really value that. And I think that that's something that's going to always be with us to some degree, I hope. And I think it's true. I also think the, the, the future is primarily going to be visual, either by video or a static-based visual, like the infographics that we've talked about. And there are some really great people who are doing infographics online right now, really great educational infographics um, online. And, and those are great. I think that organizations need to help support that in some way by either helping make templates, hiring graphic designers, providing some peer review, um, providing some sort of mechanism to help create this stuff and make it look good and accurate. The video question is a little harder. There is a lot of people who are making their reputation on video, on Instagram, TikTok, um, Reels. I don't know that we have actually figured out as academic medical societies the best way to educate people through short video. It's certainly way easier to take you know, a short video and have it be fluff um, than it is to try to create something that has solid educational content. I don't think we're there yet, but I, I do think that's where we're headed. I think that, um, that people have uh, less and less time. They want just-in-time bite-sized education and graphics provide that and potentially short videos provide that too. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I think in terms of the the future that um, visual media is going to play in in the way that we teach each other, and I think that um, social media has done a has helped kind of push the open access uh, culture um, along, and and definitely has opened things up. I think a lot. So that's great. Well, Chris, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Do you uh, do you have any take home points from your study from our discussion today that you want folks that listen to this to walk away with? Yeah, I think what I would advise people on who are listening on the call is if they're interested in getting involved in any medical society, social media is probably the lowest bar for entry to those societies. You can start tweeting a lot with and interacting a lot with the medical society, seeing who is actively involved with that society in terms of their social media presence, interacting with them. Um, putting stuff out there. And, you know, pretty soon people are going to start asking you to do things, asking you to do things like host podcasts or be on some social media committee. And then that can turn into other things for the organization. You know, I have, I have had lots of opportunities from just social media interactions. Um, you know, and I, I think there's a lot of people out there who have too. So I think if you're, if you're interested in getting involved, social media is perhaps the lowest bar for entry. So I'd encourage you to do that. That's great. Thank you so much, Chris, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Yeah. And congratulations on, to you and your co-authors on the paper and all the great work you're doing. Yeah. Thank you for having us. So that concludes this episode of Scholarly. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast player so that you can stay up to date on whenever new episodes are available. 
As a reminder, ATS Scholar is an open access journal and you can read the article discussed today at atsjournals.org. Take care, everybody.